0: Okay. uh, Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Luke chapter nine. We're going to get back to. uh, We're in a. We're in an odd. It's not odd. It's just intense. We're we're in a very intense event. In the life of Jesus and his uh, his disciples, which is why I didn't try to get through all of it last week, and I don't think we're going to get through all of it this week, frankly. But as far as I know, we're not under a time uh, clock. So, uh, what has happened <clears throat> as uh, those of you who were here last week, as Luke goes uh, goes through his history, his his uh, collation of events, and what's one sidebar, fascinating uh, when you read Luke and then go to uh, even Mark, which is about less than half the size uh, Mark has a lot of events that Luke does not cover so Luke is, is uh, choosing these events and he's taken us uh, in the ninth chapter to, uh, to what I think is, is just about until the, the events of the cross. It's, it's the most intensive event that Jesus uh, has with the life of his his disciples. He's trying to train them. He's trying to grow them. He's trying to uh, deepen them. And uh, where he has uh, taken them now is, uh, is to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And I just wanted to put, uh, again... The use of the map to me is helpful because um, if I could ever figure out how to get out of the way of it. You see the breadth. uh, On this side, you can see all of uh, Israel and, of of course, uh, a little bit of Egypt where Jesus spent his his earliest days. Uh, But uh, Jerusalem down here Galilee here, we have been around Galilee for a long, long time, all the way really uh, in Luke, but now he's way, way, way up here, and it's the only time he's here, and it is an intensive uh, retreat, training uh, episode, if you will, uh, for these disciples. (coughs) Uh, Now let me uh, flip this a little bit we going to get into uh, some interesting issues. Uh, these men have seen Jesus do remarkable things. Uh, they have seen Jesus uh, heal the sick, raise the dead, control nature, cast out demons, forgive sin. And they've heard him preach. And they've had conversations with him for a couple of years now, almost. Uh, but now he's taken them up way up to Caesarea Philippi, up in in the north, alone for a a very intensive um, session with them because he's got to have them, uh, they've got to be right. They've got to be thinking right. They've got to be on board with everything he's doing. Uh, They're not going to be until the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, but uh, he's got to get them, as far as he wants them to be. So this is an intensive uh, one-on-one here at Caesarea, and and uh, you may recall last week the amazing aspect of this place. Uh, it, it's it's, it's I, I, I I really it's just singular. It is it is a a large large stone uh, cliff uh, beside Mount Hermon, which is ten thousand feet high, and. Uh, That cliff led to the building of temples, some of which would have been there when Jesus is with his disciples. If you go there today, you'll see the ruins of them. You'll see nothing uh, above about three feet off the ground. But when Jesus is there with his disciples, some of these temples had been built. Herod the Great uh, built the temple to Augustus, uh, coming right out of the cliff, right out of the stone cliff from this grotto, from this huge cave. Now, the cave today is like 65 feet high and 50 feet across. Uh, it's smaller than it was then. It's had earthquakes and a lot of things have happened over 2,000 years. Uh, but it was called a lot of things. We, we focus mainly about Pan, which was the Greek. And when Alexander the Great got there, he, he too, he thought, oh, my goodness, something unusual is here. And he focused on a god of, called Pan, who was the, the goat man, uh, if you will. And uh, I mentioned Enoch, one of the uh, apocryphal books, one of the pseudepigraphal books. It's not in, in uh, Protestant Bibles, but it alludes to early Genesis, first four or five chapters, where you've got this these strange Uh, Nephilim and you've got these demonic angels who are copulating with human women and all this kind of stuff well they were thought to have come out of the cave which is why it was called also the gate of hell Uh, so keep that in mind as we go through this uh, this lesson and what we're going to try to do I will get through it all even if I have to give you one sentence summary of it and we, we return to to parse it a little more carefully next time uh, but uh, chapter 9 beginning in verse 18 we're going to get through 27 and as we do that we're going to look at the identity of Jesus the essence of Jesus and the mandate from Jesus uh, all of these things are going to be incorporated here in in Luke so uh in verse 18 19 and 20 we we covered this a little bit last week i'll read them again uh, this would be the identity of Jesus. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, that's very important. Jesus is is, is praying uh, to his father about this retreat that's about to happen. The disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And that we saw uh, makes uh, fairly good sense. All of those things, you could see how someone uh, who didn't, uh, f- especially perhaps someone from Nazareth who, who watched Jesus grow up, they're not thinking divinity. Uh, they're thinking uh, that's Joseph's son. Uh, well, maybe John the Baptist because they both spoke uh, somewhat similarly. Maybe Elijah from the, very, the, the last two verses of the Old Testament. You will see where that comes from. Uh, maybe one of the prophets, Uh, But Jesus isn't going to leave it there. He goes to verse 20. This is the key verse. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now that's how Luke covers uh, this particular uh, event. Uh, What's fascinating and something that we don't want to miss, however, is the fact that when Jesus says, "Who? what's What's everybody talking? What are they saying out there? What's the scuttlebutt? Uh, what's the word on the street? Nobody says Messiah. Uh, no, None of the crowds, none of the, the people who have seen, they have seen Jesus raise people from the dead. They have seen him, they've heard him preach, the Sermon on the Mount, and all of those kinds of things we've already covered. They've seen him cast out demons. They've they've seen him heal the sick. But none of them, apparently none of those things registered in any of their minds with dots that would connect to the Messiah. It's an amazing uh, lack of of forethought, I think. Uh, But this past week, I forget what day it was. um, TCM, you know, has this month of Oscar or something like that where every movie they show was an Oscar winner or an Oscar nominee, and and Ben-Hur was on this week, one of my favorite movies. Um, I think Ben-Hur would be in the running for the movie that has has probably um, been used of the Lord to lead a lot of people uh, to saving knowledge of Christ. Uh, but, at any rate, it was fascinating to me i was I was listening to it again. I don't know how many times i've, I've seen that movie, but I hadn't caught this right at the beginning of it. Uh, there's a voiceover that's sort of a uh, setting the stage for the movie and whatever this uh, whoever this person is it's a, it's a, a neutral individual off to the side as it were and and he says, the Jews are waiting for someone who will kick the Romans out and give them peace in their homeland. And I'm thinking, there it is. That, that, that misappreciation, that miscalculation, that, that uh, misnomer for Jesus is why people can see him raise someone from the dead and say, well, so what? Uh, we're still sitting here under the yoke of Rome. We're still uh, whatever. And the, the point uh, that I make in bringing that up is that you and I struggle from the same thing. Uh, suppose that special someone dies. Suppose the illness gets worse rather than better. Suppose any number of things, you can fill in the blank, each of us can do that. Uh, does that shake your faith in Jesus? Does it alter the way you look at Jesus? Is Jesus less your Messiah because something happened in a way that you were not uh, assuming it would or hoping it would. Uh, these things, in other words, are not just uh, silly little Israelites uh, who can't uh, get get it straight. I'm afraid we all suffer uh, from this sort of thing. So Jesus needs to correct that. So he's gone directly in verse 20 to his disciples with this, um, who do you say? The, the, the only thing that's important at this point in Jesus's life Uh, is that these 12 get this right. Here in Luke, Jesus has this, or or Luke uh, has Peter say just these four words, the Christ of God. And that's enormously important and significant. Uh, The Christ of God, the Messiah, therefore. We don't know how the other 11 responded. Perhaps they all agreed. Perhaps they said, Peter, you be our spokesman, since he was... Uh, very adept at that for better or for worse Uh, but much, much more important is how Matthew handles the answer to this question because Matthew goes further and Matthew includes a discussion from Jesus that Luke does not have and that particular discussion has probably led I don't know how many millions of people are dead through human history because of what Matthew gives us in two verses. Uh, It's in Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 to 19, I'll read these uh, to you. Simon Peter replied, Jesus has has asked him the same thing, who do you say that I am? And here's what Matthew records. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And here's Jesus's answer. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, uh, no one who, who has not had a, a changed heart is going to get this. Uh, you, there are just so many countless uh, stories about very, very earnest uh, Christians who bring a friend to church. And they've been trying to get them to church for decades. And they, they're they sitting there, and the sermon is so fabulous that, that the Christian is, is thinking, finally, uh, there's no way that he or she is not going to uh, to pick up on this and become a Christian. And after the service, well, what'd you think? Well, what I think about what? I, I, I didn't hear anything, really. I, just another boring sermon. And you're thinking, oh, but... Until the Holy Spirit comes in and changes the heart, none of that's going to change. And that's what Jesus has just said. Jesus says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then comes verses 18 and 19. And these two verses are three phrases which have altered human history, arguably more than any other single event in human history. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, Now, there are a number of things uh, I alluded last week to the fact that there in verse 18, Matthew 16, verse 18, the word church appears for the first time in Scripture. And this is going to be obviously building uh, throughout the rest of the New Testament in in powerful ways. Uh, But uh, I put the three controversial phrases up here on on the board. On this rock... uh, and I'm sure you've you heard about all of this and, and so forth. And then the second one, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then the keys of the kingdom that he appears to say to Peter, all of these things. Uh, I'm going to move very, very quickly through this, but feeling sorry uh, for having to do that. I put a little handout. <laughs> I'm sorry for that too. I apologize ahead of time. But if anybody wants uh, where I'm going to um, blitzkrieg my way through, you're welcome to take one. I'll pass them around. Do not feel obligated to take one. Uh, uh, but uh, at any rate, this will cover the three controversies in these, in these phrases. But, but here they are in a nutshell. The first one, on this rock. Uh, I'm not going to go into the Greek, Uh, there's a Petros, Petra, uh, the name of Peter, all of this kind of thing, uh, somewhat undone by the fact that Jesus probably spoke in Aramaic and not Greek, Uh, but at any rate, uh, on this rock, there are three ways that this verse is generally taken, one of three, Peter is the rock, that's the way the Roman Catholic Church has taken this verse and it... um, It takes it to mean that Peter and his successors will be the head of the church, that is the popes. Uh, There are some Protestant commentators who agree that Peter is the rock, but they don't take it anything like that. They take it simply to mean that Peter is the rock and that he was the one disciple that spoke up. Whether the others said anything, none of the gospel uh, record it. But maybe Peter is the rock simply because he was the guy that spoke first and got this, uh, this uh, statement uh, made. Uh, first to confess and also the others would be the foundation upon which the church would be built, Ephesians 2, verse 20. Uh, that is one way to take it. Uh, and again, that's, that's taking this expression on this rock, meaning Peter to be the rock. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, to have popes Uh, Well, let's go on. The second Second way to take this expression, Peter's confession is the rock on which Jesus will build the church. This is the majority view of Protestants. Also, ironically, many, if not most, of the early Catholic church fathers saw Peter's confession to be the rock. They weren't thinking about folks when Chrysostom and all of those people uh, were writing their insights into scripture. Third view, which I think uh, most Reformed folks go to, Christ is the rock. When, when Christ himself says, uh, on this rock, I will build my church. This is the one Jim Boyce, and by the way, I'm giving you uh, Jim Boyce's, uh, James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on Matthew. I think it's, it's the most succinct coverage of, of these issues. And Boyce goes into a number of, of um, verses. Uh, primarily, I'll, I'll give you just one of them. I've given all of them to you on your handout. Uh, but uh, if you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter himself debunks any outlandish thought that Peter himself is the rock. Peter is not the rock on which the church is built. Jesus is not going to pick any sinful, totally depraved human being to be the rock on which he builds his church. Uh, in Matthew, you only have to go uh, the very next pericope there, Matthew chapter 16, beginning in, in uh, verse 24, um, and following uh, Jesus. Well, verse 23, but, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the same Peter who about six verses previous, uh, some people think Jesus had said on you, you're the rock of the church. It's not Peter. Uh, Gates of hell, second controversial phrase here. Uh Two general ways that this is taken. Number one, the attacks on the church by Satan and his demonic forces. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, uh, meaning the, the Satan and his, his, uh, his assaults on the church and so forth. Uh, the, the problem with that, probably the largest problem with that is, is the fact that it's talking about gates, uh, which is not normally an offensive-oriented thought. Uh, if you're worried about an attacking, assaulting army, they're not behind gates. They're not hiding. Uh, they don't have to come through gates. Uh, all of this kind of thing. Uh, so some people will turn that around and say, okay, it's really the church that's attacking the satanic. Uh, you know, um, Certainly that's, that's a valid concept. Both of those, frankly, are valid ways of looking at that phrase. Uh, It is true that Satan and his demonic forces are assaulting the church and will never stop assaulting the church until he is cast into the lake of fire. Uh, But it's also true that that scripture, even though it acknowledges spiritual warfare, it doesn't really present evangelism as an assault. You're going out to assault evil forces. Now, I know many people See evangelism that way, and and again, frankly, there is a there is a a valid backdrop to it that is true. Uh, You are assaulting whenever you're speaking with an unbeliever. You're speaking with a person who is in Satan's camp, and therefore, there's a sense in which you're assaulting. But evangelism, uh, biblically, to me, is uh, includes other things like listening. Uh, being a very good listener before you come in and and start uh, stomping and and so forth and so on. Uh, So it's an interesting proposition there, somewhere between both of those, the attacks against the church as well as the church uh, fighting back. Uh, The second Gates of Hell perspective is that it's talking about death itself uh, because Jewish Jewish uh, history, 2,000 years, and still continue today, uh, Judaism will describe death often as being something that passes through the gates of hell. It's where that phrase comes into the Apostles' Creed that some churches use, some churches do not use use it here. But it's a very Jewish way of looking at death that that would describe passing through through the gates of hell. The bottom line of this phrase, to me, is simply this. The church is invincible. We're going to be assaulted. We're going to be stalked. Sometimes the church uh, is is uh, gives up more than it should. Sometimes it is harmed dramatically, all in the providence of God. But ultimately the church is invincible. Why? Because it is built upon Christ, the rock, not upon Peter, not upon any of these uh, other kinds of things. Uh, The third really controversial phrase here, the keys to the kingdom, may be the most controversial of the three. Again, three different ways of looking at this. First, Peter and his successors have been given authority to receive or exclude individual people to salvation. Now that that should send chills up your spine, but that is a Roman Catholic belief. Uh, that the Church can determine if you if you have missed mass, if you have done this, done that, uh, the Church can excommunicate you, which in the eyes of Catholicism, will cast you into hell um, that uh, I think again speaks for itself. you don't want uh, peter or or any other human being call him a pope, call him. Whatever you wish, you don't want any human being with the power to cast someone into hell or to believe that he or she has such power. Uh, Therefore, a second way of looking at the keys to the kingdom are ministers who have authority to announce. Now that word announce is very, very critical here. They're not sending anybody to hell They're simply announcing the fact that if you don't believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and savior of your life, you will be in hell. They're not making, they have no power to make it happen. They are heralds, ministers who preach and teach are heralds of the gospel, uh, speaking the truth. Now the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question 84, speaks to this. Here is the question. How does preaching the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? Here is the Heidelberg answer. According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. Uh, They get, Heidelberg gets that response, by the way, from Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, the the verse that we're looking at about the keys of the kingdom. The third way to look at this, Peter used the keys by opening the door of the gospel to Jews by his preaching at Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter two, or by opening the door to the gospel to Gentiles by preaching in Cornelius' house in Acts 10. In other words, Peter, Peter, Uh, in the New Testament, Peter does have a prominent role among the apostles. You don't hear that much about Bartholomew. You don't hear that much about some of the other of these 12. Peter you hear often about, and he is a significant member of the apostolate. Therefore, uh, perhaps the keys to the kingdom is simply a way of Jesus is pointing to the fact that Jesus is going to use Peter in mighty ways. And indeed, as you Go through the book of Acts. It's it's Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Uh, That's the reference uh, there to Acts uh, chapter two and in Acts uh, four as well and, and on and on and on. It's Peter who is out front having learned the lesson that he does not yet know at Caesarea Philippi, which is I, Peter, am nothing, but Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Come to Jesus. He will learn that and by chapter 10 of Acts, just before you get Paul taking over from Peter, in a sense. Uh, Peter also goes to the Gentiles. He goes to the house of Cornelius. He speaks and and preaches there and baptizes Cornelius and his entire family and has to defend that act uh, in Acts chapter 15 at at the Apostolic um, General Assembly, if you will. So these three Uh, phrases in Matthew's coverage of this event at Caesarea Philippi are extremely important and have led to a great deal of grief uh, throughout world history. So that's why I wanted to include that uh, in this. Now if you will go back please to Luke chapter uh, 9 and we'll pick up this story again the way Luke records it and, and the handout again is, is simply meant to reiterate what I just said uh, but you'll have it in writing if you want to get into all of that. There are a lot of weeds if you want to get into that you will be getting into a lot of weeds uh, but I have simplified and, and weeded most of the garden in that little handout uh, and now <clears throat> I mentioned that here in, in Luke chapter 9 We're going to be looking at the identity of Jesus. We just just did that. Peter, what Peter says there is enormously important, whether you're reading about uh, his response from Luke, from Mark, or from Matthew. Uh, Peter has said some things that that are incredibly important because what Peter has done is said, Jesus, uh, you're not just John the Baptist. You're not just one of the prophets. You're not any human you are from God. You are divine. That is still the issue uh, today. In, in the world in which you and I live, many, many people, and I'm talking about theologians, I'm talking about churches, I'm talking about entire denominations, will view Jesus as just kind of a good teacher. A good thing we had him around. He said some things worth listening to, uh, but he's in the same league with uh, Mohammed or, or uh, any of these other kinds of, of humanoids. Uh, what Peter says there is that Jesus, you are God, the son of God, very God of very God. When we recite the Nicene Creed uh, in church, uh, that's the phrase, very God of very God. What, what, what that creed is trying to say is what Peter is trying to say. Uh, Jesus, you are the very son of the living God. You are God. Uh, incarnate. Uh, so Peter has said some some very, very important things. Now in verses 21 and 22 of Luke chapter nine, we're going to get to the essence of Jesus. Verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. The disciples have, have got to be spinning. By, by the time... I mean he that journey that he's taken them on to get up into that uh into that neck of the woods was very arduous. It's a long, long trek, and they are there now uh, and then think about the juxtaposition again of this enormous grotto, this enormous cave which in in very very um, primitive times. Uh, people called the gate of hell. And Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail. Uh, So whatever, all of those little things, all of those temples are no longer there. The culture of Greece is no longer with us. The culture of Rome is no longer with us. Herod the Great's gone. Uh, Alexander the Great's gone. All of those things, all of those mythologies are gone. And that that cave is, is caving in. From, uh, from earthquakes and so forth, but Jesus Christ is not gone. So as we get to the essence here, Jesus and Peter's response, hopefully in behalf of all 12 of these men, Jesus in verse 21 turns around and commands them, charges them really. It's almost a disciplinary uh, tone to this command that Jesus gives him. Don't tell this to anyone. And they must certainly, if they had even the remote ability to understand what Peter has just said about Jesus, and I believe they all were grasping it uh, in the limited way that, that uh, one would in their position. Why? Why would you not why would you not broadcast it? Well, because Jesus knows something about them that they don't know about themselves. And that is that their knowledge is incomplete. It is still not what it needs to be. And they're frankly going to continue uh, to be uh, thinking erroneously, uh, just as you and I do. Now, verse 22, Jesus pulls, here, this is the cherry on the whipped cream of this passage. Verse 22, Jesus in 21 says, don't tell this to anybody saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised one sentence that must have blown the disciples into a place they have never been. If there was ever consternation, This statement by Jesus is going to underscore every bit of that. He shocks them. He confounds them with what he has come to do. Now, this is this again, this verse is very, very important because here you see the whole gospel for the first time coming together. If you study theology, when you're studying the Trinity, you'll take a course in the doctrine of God. Uh, and you'll take a course in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and you'll take a course in the doctrine of Jesus Christ. When you get to the doctrine of Jesus Christ, it's split into two camps. Uh, that's the wrong way to say it. Not, yeah, I'm not suggesting two, two disagreements. It's two, two focal points, the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. So far, what we have been focused on primarily as we walk with these disciples, watching Jesus do this, that, or the other. So far, they're trying to come up with who is this? Who He keeps asking them over and over, who do these people say that I am? And Peter has rightly said, you are divine. You are God himself. Now Jesus says, you're right, Peter. And because I'm God, let me tell you what I've come to do. And he gives them four verbs in that one little uh, verse there. He says, I've come to suffer many things. I've come to be rejected by the entirety of the Jewish religious leadership. I have come to be killed. I don't know if, he, if crucifixion, I don't know when that's going to, to come across their, uh, their radar, but uh, he, I've come to be killed. Now it's almost as if Peter, you, you can almost hear Peter sitting there thinking, wait a minute, you're divine.'" You can't die. You're eternal. You can't die. And finally, fourthly, and I will then be resurrected on the third day. So this is just an astounding couple of verses here to go along with the other astounding verses in this little retreat that these disciples are on. Uh, My suspicion is the disciples at this point are utterly stunned, probably silent, But again, the issue is, how about you and me? Um, The only Christ that there is to confess is a Christ who is crucified. And Jesus came to fulfill God's demands, his plan for salvation, not to meet the expectations of his disciples and not to meet the expectations of you or of myself. Kent Hughes in his... um, Commentary says this, when we confess Christ, we embrace his dying on the cross for us, but we also accept the reality of a cross for ourselves. This is something that the disciples are going to, uh, to learn over the, the next year as they leave that north country and head down to Jerusalem. That's the 51st verse in this ninth chapter of Luke. Now we get to uh, conclude with the mandate of Jesus, verses 23 to 27. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This, is, this, um, this passage here, Luke 9, 18 to 27, you can see why it is so foundational, so um, erupting into everything that these 12 men have have been through in the last couple of years with Jesus. Now, verse 23, anyone who would follow Jesus must take up his cross daily and follow Jesus. Three verbs again, radical self-denial on a daily basis. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Deny, take up, and follow those three verbs are the essence of what it means to be a Christian. This You could write, well, there have been books, hundreds and hundreds of books, great books written on what it means to pursue holiness. What does it mean? It means to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Uh, the pursuit of godliness, the, the, the idea of sanctification, that every day of my life, when I become a Christian, every day of my life until Jesus calls me home, I am involved in the demand that I grow in my sanctification. The Holy Spirit is helping me. The fact that God has adopted me into his family is helping me, but I am also given marching orders and they are to deny myself, to take up my own cross and to follow Jesus. The notion of faith, repentance, the notion of mortification of sin. John Owen has written the best book that that could ever possibly be written on the concept of how to mortify sin, how to put sin to death so that you can take up your cross daily and deny yourself, deny those sins. Now, why would anybody do this? Well, verse 24, because Jesus says, following him and thus losing your own life in this world is the only way to save your life in the next world. Uh Jesus, this this debunks all of those, and there are literally millions upon millions of people over history and still today who see Jesus again as just a man who had a had a fascinating philosophy and put some of it's pretty useful. Uh, So uh, you know, live by live by these uh gospel, live by the Ten Commandments, and and your life will be better. Well, that's true. Uh, but that's not what what Christianity is about. Uh Following Jesus will be the only way uh, to save your life eternally. And in order to do that, you must lose your own life. You must deny yourself. Take up your own cross and follow Jesus. Verse 25 For it does no good to gain the whole world, but lose eternity. Verse 26 For if you're ashamed of Jesus and of his word now, then when Jesus returns, with the Father, with the holy angels, in all of that glory, he will be ashamed of you. That's why one of the most, the, a phrase from scripture that will keep most Christians up some nights, maybe many nights, is I never knew you. That, that phrase is, is something that no one would ever want uh, to come before a holy God and hear spoken. Uh, so verse uh, 27, and this is sort of, this is a very mysterious, I think frankly, this is the most difficult verse of any of them that we've, we've talked about. Uh, some of these disciples will see the kingdom of God before they taste death. Uh, every commentary I've read has has goes down a different road on that. So I am not going to begin to tell you that I can tell you the best way to go. But, uh, It can mean any number of things. Uh, Many people postulate a lot of things. Uh, To me, it doesn't matter. Uh, What matters is verse 23. Verse 23 is what what comes from uh, Peter's statement about who Jesus is. When Jesus has said, I've got to go and die, but on the third day, I will be resurrected. These disciples don't know that. They don't know what, what's behind any of that. They're perplexed, they're stunned. They, I would love to have been a fly on the wall of the tent uh, or whatever, but uh, the essence of it, to me, uh, deny myself, take up my cross on a daily basis and follow Jesus. Those three verbs there, denying, taking up and following, would be more than enough to fill the rest of my life uh, with a lot of heartache, frankly, when I continue to coddle my sinfulness and and find myself to have fallen again into whatever those besetting areas uh, are, and so forth and so on, uh, this this passage, the reason that I have taken uh, the time here, this this is, this is sort of the beating heart of everything. It explains the first eight chapters and it's going to unfold over the remainder of the entirety of the Gospel of Luke and of all the Gospel accounts and of frankly all the Pauline epistles uh, as Paul seeks to unfold all of this and what it continues to mean and how you and I as Christians 2,000 years later would go about uh, dealing with this. Uh, I have a wonderful illustration that I don't have time to to give you.
1: Uh, But don't worry, I'll
0: fit it in some way or other. Uh, but uh, I hope you see the, uh, the depth and the challenge of the words we have just read. These, these are not, they're easy words. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be wonderful to hide behind some sort of theological uh, mumbo jumbo. And a lot of uh, theologians and scholars have done that over the centuries. Uh, this, there is no theological mumbo jumbo to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, it is Jesus is God. Everything else will send you to hell. To follow Jesus, I put my faith in him, which means I will, on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis, I will seek to follow him, to deny myself, and pick up uh, the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you. uh, These words, uh, there are few of them, but they literally transform lives. And we pray, Father that they will transform our life because we each have crosses. We each have difficulties, We each have things we'd love to leave behind and run away from. We each would love to stop doing some things. We each would love to start doing something. Father, help us to become prayer warriors. We pray that your Holy Spirit will infuse us, each of us, with those things uh, that we only open up to you in private. Father, be with us, walk with us, we thank you that you understand us. We thank you that even when we sin, you continue to love us. Oh, Father, what a, what a, what a wonderful thing it is to know that we are enfolded and wrapped in the grace of a loving Savior. Now, Father, help us to think these thoughts and deepen them as we celebrate this death and resurrection which these disciples have just heard about in our service today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.